Time to Travel with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Time to Travel. On the show this evening, I'll be chatting with Lindsay Sanderson, who's on the organising committee of the Mechubuskloof Spring Festival. Francois van Binsbergen is the owner of the Forgotten Route, Train to the Karoo, and he'll be telling us about this exciting new route which follows the steps of diamond miners and early explorers from Cape Town to the Karoo. And then I have the privilege of chatting with Damien Brown. He's in South Africa for the launch of his book, Band-Aid for a Broken Leg. He's a South African-born, Australian-educated doctor who spent time working for Medicine Sans Frontieres, or Doctors Without Borders, in a number of countries in Africa. Now, this should probably have been an interview for the Health Matters show, but I really thought that Damien had travelled with a purpose, and I wanted to share his story with you. And just a reminder that if you need any information about something you hear on Time to Travel this evening, you can find it on Facebook, just go to travel on SAFM. But if you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on travel at safm.co.za. So that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. You know what? Like everyone, I'm really impressed with the government's response to HIV, AIDS and TB. Why do you say that, Jimmy? Well, last week I went for my regular six-month CD4 cell count and Uh TB screening results, and the doctor explained to me that since my CD4 count is less than 350, Uh I'll be started on the ARV fixed dose combination. What is fixed dose combination? It's a three-in-one ARV that you only take once a day. Oh, my man, that is good news. Exactly. Makes taking treatment much easier. One pill once a day. Yeah, and I will be there to give you all the support you need to make sure that you take your treatment correctly and consistently. I'm going to take the HIV test and get screened for TB today so that I also know my status. It is critical to know that the priority for the FTC is given to pregnant mothers and those who are breastfeeding. For more information, visit the nearest public health facility or call the AIDS helpline on 0800-012-322. Otherwise, visit doh.gov.za. The Department of Health. A long and healthy life for all South Africans. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, I received an email from Lindsay Sanderson, who's on the organizing committee of the Mechubuskloof Heinitzburg Spring Festival, and it started like this. The Japanese flowering cherries are just coming into bloom and the crab apple trees are covered in delicate pink and white blossoms, while azaleas provide a backdrop of glorious pink, red, purple, white, mauve and yellow. Now seriously, don't you just want to get in your car right now and head off to Mahubuskloof? Lindsay, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hello, yeah, nice to be here. We, we're all supposed to be going to work here, Lindsay, but now after that, we all want to just literally give everything up and get in the car and just come to Mahubuskloof. I mean, it well, sounds I, magical. It's fantastic, and at the moment, it really is just covered in flies. So this is an annual event, and Mahubuskloof and Heinitzburg get together, and you put on this amazing spring festival. Tell me what's happening this year, because quite a lot's going on. Well, we've got the, the crafts and the arts, which is at the Orion Mahubuskloof Hotel, um, that's all sorts of handmade, you know, all very good quality stuff. And there's a food hall there with delicious, amazing food, organic products mostly. Um, and there's an orchid display as well, which is in a, in a marquee at the hotel. You've got some interesting things, one of which I think is very close to a lot of South African hearts. You've got a paintball event to raise funds for rhino conservation. And, I mean, at the way we're going at the moment, we need all the help we can get as far as that's concerned. Well, I'm hoping so. And they're also doing a a rhino snaring demonstration. And they're having T-shirts. And all the money is going to the rhino conservation, which is is going to be super. And then, you know, that's all the sort of 
emotional stuff that we, we need to be aware of. But there's a lot of fun. You've got a beer fest with an umpa band. I mean, that sounds like a whole lot of fun. Yes, and it's a real one from Germany. So oh, really? Gin and lots of German food. Oh, so it's not, not just some local South Africans pretending to play umpa music. This is oh, a real no, thing. I don't know whether they're coming from Munich. They have before, but they're, they're genuine German people. Well, that sounds amazing. But then, you know, the thing as well, you, all these things happening in, in the town. What about accommodation? There's lots and lots of accommodation. Um, the best place is to go to the, the website if you want accommodation. There's, there's bed and breakfast, there are hotels, there are rest camps, and there's camping as well. Now, this is one of those, where every time I talk about this area, it always makes me think it's one of those best-kept secret type places. Because if you go onto the Mahubas Kloof tourism website, you would be absolutely amazed at the amount of stuff there is to do around there. I mean, and also as part of the festival, you're going to have all sorts of other outdoor activities. Tell me a little bit about what's going on as far as that's concerned. Well, the other outdoor things are, are things like birding, which is one of the best South African places for birding in the Woodbush Forest. There's rare birds there, if you like them. And there's hiking on the grasslands and in the forest. Um, adventure sports, you know, cloofing, um, abseiling, all sorts of dangerous, nerve-wracking things that <laughs> <laughs> you want. And um, then there's, there's a wonderful place to go to, is the organic cheese farm, which um, gives you shows, has tours and cheese-making demonstrations. You can watch the milking, play with the animals, and eat lots of delicious cheese. Um, what else? Lots there? of water sports in your area? The water sports, we've got the Ebenezer Dam, which is, they're having a big regatta actually this, this coming weekend as well, just to add to the joy. Oh, that sounds fun. And you're also mountain biking. So, I mean, there's almost something oh, yes, for everybody. There's, there's about 75 kilometer, kilometers of mountain biking trails, which, you know, you can join in for children, for adults, for, for novices, for everybody. And, and the beautiful, beautiful countryside. Now, there are lots of things for children to do, so it is definitely a family event, a family couple of days to come along. It's um, definitely family, yeah. Lots of things happening at the library for the children. In the library, they're going to do art and crafts and videos and, and look after the little ones who might get bored when they, you know, their parents are, are looking at crafts. So they're going to be cared for there by genuine people and in safe and envi- in safe environment. Now, when I started this, I told people all about the wonderful things, the flowers that you could come and see. And you can go to this at the Cheerio Gardens and the Sequoia Gardens. What are they going to be having on show there? Well, Cheerio Gardens has, I don't know how many acres, but many acres or hectares of cherries, crab apples, rhododendrons, dams, streams, and lovely walks through the trees. And they also have a tea garden there, which you can enjoy. And you can have a braai, you can have a picnic. Um, you can actually spend the whole time there and you'd be happy. So you, you're opening up this, as I said, the secret destination because it just your location makes me think it's almost one of those hidden away places that you know people discover. It's not. Do you get hordes of tourists up there, Lindsay, or is this one of those places that people discover and then keep coming back to? Uh, yeah, I think they discover it and come back and come back. <laughs> then they never want to leave and they come and live here and then. It is quite a small area, though. I mean, I remember speaking to somebody from there before and they said in the town itself there's not that many people who actually physically live in the town itself. No, it's very small. I think there are about 500 people. So it is quite a small little place. Mm. And you don't mind us all pitching up to come and explore and visit your beautiful part of the world? No, we love having you there. (laughs) (laughs) It's really fun. And there's another thing that's really nice. There's an art exhibition um, by the Limpopo Arts Association, which is going to be very good. And that's at a place called Mina's Cafe at Zulaka. And that should be well worth a visit. There's teas and 
breakfast and everything there as well. And the nice thing, it's it's not a one or two day event. This is going on from the 21st to the 29th. So is there a full program of events on the Mahubas Clue of Tourism website if people want to come up for a specific thing? It's actually on the Spring Festival website. Oh, okay. So what is that? What, what was the website for that? Uh, www.springfestival.co.za. Oh, simple as that. Okay. But everything there. So if people are wanting to find out what's happening when, they can have a look at that and then they can pop up. But if I'm assuming if they're wanting to stay over, they would need to book their accommodation before they got there? There's accommodation, you know, there too, the full list of accommodation. Yeah, best that they can find something before they come. Mm. It might be... Well, I was about to say, don't pitch up on the day and sort of get all upset because now there's nowhere to stay. You should have booked before you left. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so definitely. Get, get on to that. It sounds like an amazing event. And how many people are you expecting this year, Lindsay? How many did you have last time? Do you know? I don't know. We can never count them. <laughs> They're all over the place. <laughs> yes, you know, we don't have... And, the, and in lots of places, it's free, so there's no sort of charge that we can work out. Yeah, I was going to ask you about costs. What what are the char- what, what is going to cost people money if they come up there? Obviously, if they want to stay over, that will cost them the accommodation. But are there different events and different things? What's going well, to cost the, them? Well, the concerts, Richard Cock and Master de Free, so they'll pay for that. But they can bring their own food, so they don't have to pay extra for oh, that. Oh, that's good. Okay. And, it's, um, and then the beer fest they'll pay for. And the paintball, because that's raising funds for rhino conservation. Yes. But then the other things are mostly free. Or, you know, you go on a cheese tour, it'll cost you something, but you can just go there and taste some cheese for nothing. Okay, so you can actually decide what you'd like to do and how much you'd like to spend, which is actually rather nice. So is isn't a sort of a, a flat rate. If you're coming to the, the festival, you have to pay X amount to get in. You no, can, no, you because all the arts and crafts stores and, and venues are all free. And then there's a fairy walk for the children. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, Colleen Ballenden is organizing that. Because all the it's entertainment... Really, yeah, and it's beautiful, you know. And there are really fairies in the forest. Oh, well, gosh, I think more adults will want to come and see that as well, not just the children. That should oh, be yeah, well, very fun. well. <laughs> but all the stuff at the library for the children, the entertainment there, that's all free as well. That's so all free. the children will be entertained and looked after safely for, for free. And that's um, weekdays. It doesn't happen over the weekends, but no, that's during the week. Okay, well, Lindsay, it sounds like you're going to be inundated with people. I hope you all, all have a fabulous time and that people really discover the joys of coming up to Mahubas Cliff and Hanitzburg. It sounds like an amazing place to discover. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. I hope so. Thank you for having me on the, on the program. Only, only a pleasure. Enjoy the festival. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lindsay. Okay. Good night Bye. to you. Lindsay Sanderson is on the organizing committee of the Mahubas Cliff Hanitzburg Spring Festival, which is taking place from the 21st to the 29th of September. Now, for information on what's going on and what's happening when and where, you can have a look at their specialized website. It's springfestival.co.za. But for more information on the area, which is packed with information, you can go to mahubascliffetourism.co.za. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, the Forgotten Route train to the Karoo is a new tour following in the steps of diamond miners and early explorers from Cape Town to the Karoo. Francois van Binsbergen is the owner and spokesperson for the Forgotten Route and owner of Wine Flies Wine Tours. Francois, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, hello. How are you? Well, I'm very well, thank you. This is a fabulous tour. I was reading through what you do on it and I sort of thought to myself, well, God, why hasn't anyone thought of this before? You know what, uh, we've done this uh, like a couple of years ago, uh, me and a couple of friends went up and um, just, for, just, for, just, for, just for fun really. 
And I've realized there's actually something in it. You know, we all dressed up with top hats and mm. all of that, you know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we, we had little umbrellas and all of that. And we, um, I, did, I just realized I've been in the tourism for quite a while, and I've just realized there's something about the Karoo that needs to be... Um, the forgotten uh, Karoo, without the cliche, that needs to be founded again, you know? But the thing about your tour, though, Francois, it's not just, well, you get on a bus and you stop here and look at something and get back on the bus. It's, it's, a full ex- it's more of an experience than a tour. Definitely so. Basically, what it is, is, is um, we, you know, in the mornings, we actually, uh, um, without you knowing, um, you actually meet people in the Green Market Square. We actually have um, our tour guide standing in Green Market Square and you follow through Green Market Square and then you just hear extra, extra, read all about it, you know, like the old school mm, saying, mm. and that's your tour guide standing there dressed up with a top hat and a pocket watch and a, and a cane and all of that, you know, and that's how the tour starts. And then we take people through the, the company gardens, explain them exactly like the history of, you know, of, of, of Cape as such. And then we take them through to Kimberley Hotel and, um, at Kimberley Hotel, I don't know if you know, but Kimberley Hotel in Cape Town was the official departure point for the horse carriages back in the 1800s for but that, the diamond that, ride. That hotel, I mean, if I, I'm in Cape Town, so you look at that hotel, I see it often when I pass by. It looks like it's something out of a bygone era. I mean, they haven't done much to the facade, so it still looks like it looked then. I'll tell you what. It's uh, amazing. The floor itself there, and um, I know one of the guys obviously working there, the floor itself there is the original floor. The bar is the original bar. Apparently, there's a story that says that um, the first million-pound check was signed over from, uh, by, um, from Cecil John Rhodes uh, over to Barney Bonato for his shares in the De Beers uh, mining industry, you know. So it's got a lot of history. And that's really nice because that's kind of like where our tour then departs from. And, and you then do, we go in the Karoo. You tell the story while you're there so people get the feel of where yeah, you're going Yeah, obviously. Okay. You know, we take a little um, Polaroid pictures of people. We have uh, designed a little Karoo passport. Oh, nice. Place a picture, uh, Place a picture in the passport and then we go like, there we go. Now let's go and continue forth, henceforth. So from the Kimberley Hotel, it's off to Rawsonville by bus. That's correct. And then we go to Kirabu Wine Estate, the local family there. And then we do some wine tasting there. We learn a bit about the history of the wine farm itself. And we incorporate it, obviously, with a big movement of the early uh, settlers, really, up towards the Diamond Rush. So it's all chronologically that we try to follow up. And then off on a train. And it's not, I mean, it's the Shoshalos and Mail. So it's not the old train of, of old, basically. But it's no. still, it's not the... You know, it, it's still on a train, and you're still going on a train it's journey. A train. So and it's what's really nice journey. about the train is, is the fact that you you are following in the footsteps because back in those days, the people took the train, mm. um, and then um, it's the scenery. You get to see it the way they type of uh, have, have seen it back in those days. And you know, then you arrive in Mikey's Fontaine, and Mikey's Fontaine is a fantastic place. It's a one horse town. I love that place. You know that uh, very song, well. Uh, there's a, there's a train on Mikey's yes. from uh, Sonia Harold. <laughs> yes, uh, I remember that. Classic. And then um, we actually do that. And when we arrive in Mikey's Fontaine, there's one horse town. And then people are really stepping back in time and they're mm. really feeling like, what is going on here? Where are we? It's like a different dimension. It's uh, really something taken from the 1800s and it hasn't really changed at all. So then, you know, as you arrive in Mikey's Fontaine, we take you to, 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 you know, to your rooms and so on, and we do all weird and wonderful things with you uh, whilst you're there.
Because you do a night bus tour in Mikey's Fontaine. And Mikey's Fontaine is one of those places that is apparently full of ghosts. So there's lots of nice ghost stories, I'm sure, that you can tell when you're there. Yeah, definitely so. I mean, we actually, we go on a, the, the, this bus, and the bus is known as the shortest tour in the world. <laughs> now, it's absolutely phenomenal because the, it's very dry humor. And it's, um, I mean, for example, if you drive down the main road, this road used to be actually the old N1. But now we're actually standing in the road and you drive down this road and you, the, the guy would, for example, your tour guide would say, as you drive with this bus, he would say, and people, we turn left because there is no right. Because there's actually no right, you know. So that's the type of uh, dry humor, very historically based mm. and with, you know, um, a tongue-in-cheek uh, tongue type of uh, thing that we're trying to uh, combine with a lot of fun. And the traditional Karoo lamb brine, I mean, that would have to be happening out in that part of the world because, I mean, that is just so Karoo. Obviously. No, we, 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 we do that. We have uh, Karoo lamb brine choppies um, and then obviously catering for vegetarians as we are a tourism company. Um, and then um, after the Karua Lambrai, um, then what you do is, is uh, we do a bit of a, we call it an odd night stroll. And the odd night stroll basically entails that we pay, take people, we've got um, um, authorization from Mikey's Fontaine itself to take the people into the museum at night time. And it's a very eerie museum. Mm. It's uh, freaky. It's very traditional, uh, very, I mean, very historical. And um, it's just such an intense experience, especially if you visit the museum at night time, you know. Mm. Then afterwards, if weather allows and if we feel like it, because sometimes we just don't feel like it, because <laughs> the, 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 there's quite a bit of a festive um, mm. uh, vibe going oh, right. on. Right, okay. Then we um, do some stargazing. We've got a telescope, and because, um, um, I mean, this is 90 kilometers south from Sutherland. Mm. Now, Sutherland is one of the best star viewing places in the Southern Hemisphere. So the stars is amazing, you know. So you do, so like after you go to a lamp chop, you do an odd night stroll, you, 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 you see the stars at nighttime, and then only to end with the fact that you're actually going back to the bar and you're doing honky-tonk music mm -hmm. around this old piano with a guy with his hat on, his top hat on, and so on. So it's... It's kind of, it's really you're stepping back into a different dimension of the 1800s. Now, the sad part is, though, Francoise, we have to leave the next morning. Oh, this is true. Yeah. But it's fine. Oh. Because the next morning, you actually, um, the, we've, got a, we've, got a, we've got a breakfast there, and it's, and it's done in a very, uh, um, it's, just, it's just so stuck in time, really. You I know? love this. I absolutely uh, love this. Yeah, it's like poached eggs and, and, and like, baked beans and warm baked beans. You know, it's like yes. all quite, a, quite colonial as such, you know. Mm. And then uh, we drive back and we um, visit the old cemetery that's, that's there where Mr. James Douglas Logan um, is, is buried, um, which was the founder of Mikey's Fontaine. So there's, again, a lot of history um, aspects of it. And then we actually we drive through and we've done a little bit of research. And we, we as a company, trying to keep it very rustic, very real, very authentically South African with a touch of bohemian, a touch of madness, you could almost say. And then we stop over at... Opa Bat Savunkel. And Opa Bat Savunkel is basically, it's a butchery, which we just found. They're not, they're not, they've never been geared up for tourism. We just found this place. And we asked Tani Haniki to um, show us how biltong is being made, how dried fruit is being made, because they make it there. And then afterwards, that we actually sit on one of the stoops. And we have a poiki course there, and um, the, there's, there's more beer, there's more wine flowing. And it's just a festive uh, way back.
after that, we actually head through the beautiful Coo Valley. Um, and then we stop over at Montague, where we do a beer tasting, uh, local craft beers at Montague. And um, then, uh, while well, our last stop really before we go back home is, is we um, stop at an Anglo, old Anglo Boer Wharf fort. And again, sticking with the history, sticking with that era. Um, and then we start slowly but surely making our way back home. Usually the, the, uh, the, 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 the feeling in the bus is uh, festive and um, the people are still continuing with their night actually before. So it's, but it's really what it is about. It is a, it's a historical journey done in a tongue-in-cheek way with um, the focus on keeping it fun and focused on the market of the locals, you know, wanting to learn about history and also the corporate market as well. You know, those guys that actually want to do team buildings and that type of stuff. It's a perfect bachelor's as well. Because it's only two days and one night, so it's not as if it's a long trip. No, no, it's not a killer. I mean, it's, it's you know, when you get back home, you are definitely tired because it's been eventful. But, I mean, you, you come back home with learning. One of the, the people that actually been on our tour said, like, he's never learned so much history about the Karoo as he's done on, as he's done on, our, on, on our tours. So there's... Um, is history, tongue-in-cheek, fun. Now, I just need to ask you whether I've got this information with a typing error on it or whether it is correct that this actually costs you 1,250 rand per person. I mean, that sounds a bit cheap there, Francois. Yeah, you know what? Uh, I think it should be a typing error, but actually <laughs> it's, it's not. not. <laughs> Currently, our price is only 1,250 rand, and that's um, basically everything that I said but the Not only the thing that you pay for is just your own drinks, obviously, because we don't know how much um, um, you know you'll be drinking at the bar, and also just your own lunches. So one thousand two hundred fifty rand includes it all. It sounds like one of those almost things you have to put on your bucket list now because you have to go and experience this. It is just the most fabulous thing. I love history, and this to me would just be ideal, just to discover the history of that part of the world, which is amazing. And it sounds like a whole lot of fun while you're doing it. So you're learning without realizing you're actually learning anything. Yeah. You know what? Um, it's funny that you say bucket list. I've got an email today about uh, uh, one of our clients saying, uh, she's booking 13 people, and she just said the the heading in the email is called bucket list. So you're quite correct. <laughs> and uh, we we keeping it. Uh, you know what? Um, we're a big, big believers. We quite um, we quite romantics, and we lose ourselves uh, in that. And we're trying to keep it very romantic in the sense of history. Think David Livingston. Think uh, Sherlock Holmes. That era. That's what we really love, and um, there's a lot of specialness behind it, so we're trying to keep it that way. Francois, it sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me on the show this evening. I hope those people listening will be phoning you up or checking out the website and booking because this is something really different and really special to go and do. Thank you for your time this evening. I'm going to stop you right there and just going to say to you the website is theforgottenroute.co.za. Perfect. Thank you for your time <laughs> this evening, Francois. Lacker, man. Thanks. Take care. Good night to you. Ciao. Francois van Binsbergen is the owner and spokesperson for The Forgotten Route and the owner of Wine Flies Wine Tours. For more information or to book, you can call 021-423-2444 or take a look at www.theforgottenroute.co.za. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, when I was first offered an interview with Dr. Damien Brown, I wasn't quite sure whether to invite him to join me on the Health Matters program 
or whether to invite him to join me on this one, Time to Travel. But then I thought he actually has travelled, and rather extensively, but he's travelled with a purpose, and we'll get to that in a moment. Damien, good evening. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you're currently in South Africa promoting your book, Band Aid for a Broken Leg, and this is all to do with your time spent as a doctor working around Africa and beyond with Doctors Without Borders. Yes, I spent a couple of years with them. Uh, first, it was in Angola in 2006, so about four years after the civil war ended. And then I went back to work in Australia in a fancy intensive care unit and couldn't quite deal with the, the transition back to all that technology. And then uh, a year later, left my job in Australia and went back with them uh, to Mozambique and then after that to South Sudan. Now, you are born and bred to a point, Cape Tonian, South African boy, and you emigrated to Australia at the age of 14 where you studied medicine. Yes. And then you had this need, it seemed to come through in the book, that you had this absolute desire and this need to go out there and help. And this is what the help turned out to be, that you applied to work for Doctors Without Borders. And that your first posting, as you said, was in Angola. And I think it was initially quite a culture shock for you. It was a huge culture shock. I mean, I, I grew up in... Um in Bergfleet in Cape Town and um, I mean we left in 91 so it's still very much under the old apartheid system and you know I thought I always thought in in Australia then afterwards I thought you yeah, know I've, I've been to Africa and I understand Africa and I've lived in Africa driven through the Cape Flats occasionally you know on the way to Gordon's Bay and then um, arriving in Angola I mean it was just it was an Africa I'd not known you know it was mud huts. Myself and, and three other volunteers were the only white faces in town. Just a very, 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 very poor, devastated community. Devastated in terms of infrastructure. It was quite a shock initially. Also, I mean, to jump ahead, kind of remarkably safe and friendly, which I'd not really expected. You know, I was quite intimidated when I first arrived there. You know, certainly very welcoming people and there was a bit of a language problem, I think, initially for you. Yes, a huge language problem. I mean, the joke I sort of make is that in an Australian's idea of speaking a second language is very different to European or any other nationality's idea. I, I mean, Portuguese is the, the language in Angola or the, the, the sort of national language. And I, I told MSF when I was applying that I spoke reasonable or at least basic Spanish, which is, you know, reasonably similar. And they said, oh, well, you pick up Portuguese quickly then but realised very quickly that my idea of speaking basic anything was very different to, you know, a European person's idea. You know, I spoke 30 words. I could have ordered a bottle of water in a market. And <laughs> so it was a huge problem. And none of the guys, none of the staff I worked with in Angola, the Angolan staff, which were the majority of the project, there were 100 of them and four of us expats, and none of the Angolan staff spoke any English, not a word. And so it was very difficult. The first month was very difficult. I mean, uh, that was the main, really the main obstacle was to, to get on top of the language before I could then even, you know, comprehend the cultural issues and everything else happening. There were obviously issues with you. You were very young at the time. as You were a young, new doctor and coming into a situation like that where these people possibly weren't qualified doctors or medical professionals as such, but had worked in the field in a medical sort of situation, if you like, for a lot longer than you had been a doctor. And that was a little bit of an issue with them because you were the, the new guy on the block. Yes. Yeah. And the, the nickname I picked up was um, the new doctor in Portuguese, or Nova Doctor. And 
right up until the day I left six months later, they still <laughs> called me the new doctor. Hopefully more as a term of endearment by that stage. I'm not sure. No, it was very difficult. The guys there were, I mean, extremely basically trained. All of them had survived or lived through, you know, this 27-year civil war. So they all had incredible backgrounds, incredibly difficult backgrounds. And some were, you know, barely literate. And they'd been trained to various levels as as health workers. And, you know, at the most basic level, they'd dispense medications and do nothing else, you know, under guidance. But a lot of the guys were fantastic. And, you know, even though they had no formal medical training, they could recognise diseases that I'd never seen, things like measles that we just don't see in Australia. And then there was one guy in particular who ended up forming quite a big part of the, the story in my book who was, I was told he was sort of the surgeon when I went there, because I'm not a surgeon. And I said, look, I can't be the only doctor in this town, which I was, if I can't operate on people. And they said, no, 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 there's, there's this guy, he's a surgeon. And then I arrived there and then I was told, oh, actually, no, look, he's not a doctor, not a nurse, no formal medical training, but he can do life-saving procedures. And that's, I mean, that just sounded insane to me. It was like, I'd never heard of anything like that. And... The first time I went to operate with this guy, I thought, oh, this is this is not right. I mean, we're going to do damage here and we, we should not be doing what we're doing. We're trying to take the appendix out of a woman. And it, look, it was very neat and everything. But the, the backstory is he'd been trained during the war actually by South African doctors in military hospitals to do emergency surgery. So things like a quick amputation, um, a laparotomy, a caesarean section. But... You know, couldn't necessarily name all the structures he was looking at in a belly, but was extremely neat and, and precise in operating. So the first time we did this and the second and third time, I just thought, this is insane. This is not ethical. <laughs> and, and then, you know, fast forward six months, by the time I left, I'd seen this guy do at least 30 major operations and he'd never, um, none of the patients that he'd ever operated on had any complications or infections. And... You know, it was very, very good. And it sort of, you know, underscored the fact that I, I came very much with my, you know, Western kind of glasses on or, or way of seeing things and assumed that these guys were going to benefit immensely from my education and my teaching sessions and, and, and left with a very, very different sort of perspective. And they didn't go down to you. Well, anyway, the teaching sessions didn't like things. No. <laughs> told what to do by you. So. No, no. And, and really, most or a lot of these guys just refused to work with me for the first month or two. And I, it was a very, very slow, difficult process of trying to sort of prove my credentials in a way. But it must have been quite difficult for them if you were going, if doctors were coming in and out on a six-month rotation sort of thing. Every six months they're getting a new doctor and new methods and new ideas and new ways of doing things and new protocols. I mean, it must be very upsetting for them, basically, to try and work like that. Very. So you can sort of understand where they were coming from at Definitely, point, yeah. definitely. And in retrospect, it's the right thing that they sort of assume that you don't know what you're doing <laughs> because... Because, you know, they don't know yeah. anything about mm. your background. And, and as you say, it's a completely different scenario to what you'd come from. Yes. Completely. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Now, while you were there, you do get to little breaks every now and again. You'd get time off to go just to get out of that very stressful situation. And then you'd travel a little bit around in the country where you were at the time. What did you see when you went on your little breaks? Yeah, well, actually, so I was in, in Angola, that, that posting was six months, and we got one break in the middle, which was extremely needed by that point. You know, A, because of the medical work and, and the on-call and stuff, but B, just because I was living with three other people, three other volunteers. So it's a case study in cabin fever. You stare at each other all the time and your time off and you have all your meals together. 
So the breaks, we had a 10-day break in the middle and I couldn't leave Angola because of sort of work visa issues. So, you know, which was great actually because, it, it, you know, a great opportunity to travel around and not many people get the opportunity to go into a country like that. But I flew to Luanda, spent about three days sleeping and then had several of the world's most expensive hamburgers. Luanda is uh, ironically... Yes, I, I read that. That would sound bizarre. That yeah. For a tourist, it's almost one of the most expensive places to travel Apparently to. Apparently the... I think last year it was again ranked as the most expensive city in the world for expats. That's ridiculous. Ridiculous. I mean, 30, 40 US dollars for a hamburger. And a bad hamburger in, you know, in, in, a, in a very awful restaurant. Everything's flown in and these ridiculous taxes and levies on everything. It's very expensive. So Luanda... I stayed in for about a week and it's a crazy town and I've I've never seen such a stark divide between the haves and the have-nots. I mean, it's just ringed in by these vast shanty towns and I read somewhere that 10% of Angola's population are disabled to some degree from the war, you know, landmine injuries and things like that and they call them os mutilados, you know, the mutilated, literally. And and so Luanda's just full of beggars and street kids and these, you know, ringed by these huge shanty towns. And then you look offshore and there's just oil rigs everywhere and, um, you know, these extremely expensive bars all along these beautiful beaches on the coast that, you know, the top one or two percent sort of oil workers, government employees end up at. So it was a, yeah, very, very sort of striking. It sort of, I wasn't particularly comfortable there. And then went to a little town halfway between Luanda and the town I was working in called Mavinga. And that town was Lubanga. And actually, it used to be a huge... I read somewhere, it was the second biggest Boer community at one stage um, outside of South Africa. It was huge. And the, and the Boers had all sort of headed there, I think, in the... I, I forget the years, maybe the 30s or the 40s. But there was a huge Boer community. Very rich, sort of fertile farming land. But, uh, you know, I had all left during the war. So, And then back to work. Now, when you were in Angola still before you left, there was... You did have some troubles, if you could like to call it that. There was an explosion that was quite unnerving. We were just sitting at lunch, the the four of us, and all of a sudden there was just this really loud explosion. But, I mean, I'd never sort of experienced anything like that. There was a demining, a lot of mines around town, landmines, and every every day the, the demining team, the Halo Trust, which is the, the organisation that was made famous by Princess Diana. She was sort of photographed posing in the... In the, in the minefields, they at least once a day would detonate the morning's finds. You know, they'd go and systematically remove these things with handrails. And we, one day at lunchtime, just heard this incredible boom. But I mean, you could feel it. And it was far, far deeper than anything, you know, we'd heard before with the, the, the demining team. And we were just petrified and thought, you know, was this an attack or is this is someone just trod on something? And, yeah, I mean, within seconds you could hear screaming and we ran outside and there was just a wall of people running towards our hospital. And, yeah, it was, it was very dramatic. And, and it's probably about 15, 20 people um, injured to various degrees. One guy died, unfortunately, a policeman. Um, our surgeon, that guy, Roberto, that I, was, uh, I mentioned before, the uh, you know, so-called surgeon, really, really sort of tragically or ironically, you know, he'd worked during the war and he'd survived the war, he'd never been injured during the war. And he was injured then, and he had a, a shrapnel injury to his leg. So he came in, and um, he was wounded as well, and very, very dramatic. And it turned out that what had happened was there was an old cache of buried hand grenades under a hut that had been triggered by a house fire. And it just sort of, you know, for me, just underscored the sort of ongoing difficulties that these guys lived with. You know, that there had been a peace agreement for four years, but, you know, e- even so, there were still these occasional injuries that just sort of 
really, really scarred these people. So your six months were up. <clears throat> you went back to Australia to the Western Medicine and the hospital. And you, you start off talking about this man, I think he was in ICU, just had some coronary bypass or something with all these tubes. And you're sort of standing there looking quite almost bewildered by all the tubes and the machines. and Because you'd come out of a hospital where you literally were making do and, and having to jerry-rig a lot of stuff because there was nothing really. And suddenly you've all this, and it almost was overwhelming for you and you decided to go back. Yeah, it's a big cliche in this sort of AIDS world where people say, you know, you, you, before your first trip, you're just worried that what if you can't cope? What if you're overwhelmed by what you see? And all the sort of salty old sea dogs who've been doing this for years just sort of say, oh, wait till you come back. You know, it's far more difficult. And it really is because I think when you're there, you just in the field, you just there are confronting things, but you're busy. And so you get up and you, you don't often get time to just sit and go, oh, poor me. And, oh, you know, I, I missed my friend's wedding and this is all sad and I want to be at home. It's just busy and you get up and you go to work. And then you come home and you sort of, you know, you open the lid on this sort of bottle of experiences and everything starts to come out and you process it. And then at the same time, you go to work exactly like you said. I went to work straight in an intensive care unit in a place where, you know, money is quite privileged in Australia. I mean, money is just, as a doctor at the bedside, it's no consideration. I never have to make that sort of value judgment. And I found that very difficult, which is ridiculous because I don't begrudge it. And it's what I'd want for my father and my grandfather. And it's what I'd want when I'm older. But by the same token, it, you know, it was no longer... That, that world of poverty was no longer sort of another universe. It was, well, it's only a 12-hour flight away. How is it that there where, you know, um, you know, improvising exactly like you're saying, jerry-rigging, you know, giving neonates espresso shots? Yeah, I was um, as fascinated by that. Yeah. They, well, they all thought you were crazy anyway. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> giving babe, newborn babies coffee. You know, yeah, like there was a method to your madness. Something you'd read, you relied quite heavily on on books and and other sort of documents that had been left, m most of which were quite old. Yes, yeah. I mean, you do what you can, and uh, I mean, the, so we the, have to just clarify this coffee thing. Yes, we're going to start thinking what. <laughs> well, I mean, I should just clarify as well before before we <laughs> tune out and go. Oh my God, this guy's performing experiments on people. I mean, the the, the prevailing ethic for being out there, you know, as a medical practitioner, is you know, first do no harm. So you're very mindful of the fact that even though, you know, you, you, you're the only doctor and, and, and you kind of got to improvise, you don't want to start doing things that might be dangerous and risky. I mean, you, that's always, if you're unsure, you don't take stupid chances with patients. But we had two premature babies. They were twins, actually. And, and they were having these periods, uh, they're called apneic attacks, where they sort of, they go for a few seconds, they'd stop breathing. And that's not uncommon with premature babies, particularly very premature babies. And Back home, I'd worked in a nursery in Australia before I'd been there, and one of the treatments that, that sort of offsets this is a caffeine infusion. But it's done, you know, obviously very scientifically and accurately, and you, you do it by body weight, and the machine gives the infusion. And we didn't have that equipment there. And, and so I thought long and hard and, you know, looked up the half-life of caffeine and thought, well, what if we put a nasogastric tube in these, in, in, to these kids' noses and, and just give them espresso shots three times a day? And I... I I couldn't see that it would harm them. I mean, not in ridiculous doses, but I couldn't see that it would do any harm. And at best, it, it might help. And we did. And the staff thought we were insane. But um, we found textbooks that supported, you know, the caffeine. And look, I mean, the kids did fine. But, you know, so many times in these situations, you don't know if people are getting better, you know, because of or in, or in spite, spite of what you're doing. You don't know. But 
It certainly didn't seem to do any harm, and the kids did okay. And then, much to your mother's horror, you decided to go to Somalia. Didn't yes. manage to actually get to Somalia, but that was your initial plan. Quite tragic why you didn't go in eventually. Yeah. It was. I agreed to a project there, and, and I thought long and hard about it. And it was one of two countries, the other being Afghanistan, where I'd sort of vowed to myself I would never go. Just I, I, I considered too big a risk. And then there were, I was offered a project in Somalia or in Mogadishu working with mal, malnourished kids, and I worked with a lot of malnourished kids in Angola. And it's... It, extremely satisfying thing and you know in many ways seemed to me the epitome of 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 aid work and why you'd want to work out there because you know aids kids and be in a sort of victims and blameless and and it's a very satisfying thing to treat because you get these kids that look you know just like a bag of bones really when they're bundled in and four weeks later they're toddling around the compound trying to kick a soccer ball and it's extremely satisfying so i thought look yeah i wasn't comfortable with the risk but i thought okay it's it's with kids. No one's going to target me if I'm working with kids. I mean, why? And then the morning I was supposed to fly out from, from Kenya into Somalia, um, we got the news that three MSF workers had been murdered in a targeted attack. And, I mean, devastating. I, I'd not met them, but it was very sad. So all the other expats were pulled out and went to the memorial service. And, you know, it was a very sort of sobering um, reminder for me anyway, or, or wake-up call, not even reminder that, you know, that these risks aren't theoretical and, you know, that the, these things do happen. Yeah, very sad. But, I mean, you know, fortunately these incidents are few and far between and, um, and MSF just decided actually recently, very regrettably on their part, had to pull out of Somalia because of, you know, ongoing sort of insecurity and, and concerns over that. And then, so you took another post to Mozambique, which I think for you was probably your most frustrating time because I don't think you felt that you were achieving what you could have done while you were there. And that, that didn't last terribly long. And then you went off to South Sudan. But the Mozambique was really mostly dealing with flood victims and, yes. and problems with flooding and, and that sort of thing. And almost, I mean, I remember one day you said you spent the whole day measuring the upper arms of children and you sort of felt, well, I could be doing a bit more than this. On, on one hand, it was fantastic because it was safe friendly, incredible people. And there'd been huge floods that had displaced thousands of, or tens of thousands of people living along the Zambezi and tributaries. And um, so we went out to run mobile clinics and we were expecting a cholera outbreak because that had previously been the case. But yeah, it got there and the water started to recede, and the, which is fantastic. I mean, you, you, of course, definitely don't, you know, You're wishing you, even though you, yeah, you stand there most of the time going, well, okay, we'd there might be too many of us here and, and we're going to have to pack up soon. I mean, it's, it's a victory for everyone. You don't want there to be an outbreak. But then, you know, the flip side of that is as well, you, you kind of, you recruit a lot of staff, local staff, and then because there's not an emergency intervention anymore, you'd have to sort of lay them off. You know, it was always the understanding, I imagine, because it was always temporary contracts. But that was, yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult when you're working with these people and you, you get to sort of hear their stories and then you do that. So that was a slightly frustrating aspect. And actually, one of the one of the Mozambican guys made a comment when we were driving home one day and we were, we were heading back to pack up and leave the country. And I asked him, you know, what, what he was going to do. And he said, you know, he didn't know. Sometimes he got work for a few weeks a year as a translator with another NGO. Um, so that's, sorry, non-government organisation. And he said, you know you never know, maybe there'll be a flood and I'll get more work. And I thought that was a really kind of telling comment because there's obviously no malice in that. And these were his, this was his town, you know, he didn't, he, his family was affected and he obviously wasn't wishing for disaster. But, you know, the flip side of it is for these guys, it's often the only um, source of employment, these, these organisations. Um, 
Yeah, so it was a, quite a sort of a sobering comment, I thought. Mm. And then went to South Sudan, ironically, after vowing with the whole Somalia thing that I would never go to a dangerous place, ended up in South Sudan, which is not the most stable place. And I had another conversation with my mum, who was by this stage extremely panicked. I don't <laughs> blame her. I'm telling you, Damien, I don't know how she coped. I no, wouldn't have coped. She kept saying, oh... I'm wearing holes in my pants, praying on my knees all the time for you. It's ridiculous. <laughs> you owe me pants for this. So I went to South Sudan and out to a town of about 40,000, 50,000 people near the Ethiopian border. And, I mean, the medical needs there were vast. It was a very big project, um, about 10, 12 expats, more than 100 local staff, and very, very vast medical needs. Um, a lot of clan fighting still between the groups there. Um, usually over cattle raids, heavily armed guys wandering around town a lot. So they'd be victims of gunfights a lot of the time, a lot of infectious diseases, things like TB, HIV, less so malaria, and a lot of malnourished kids, which is, you know, heartbreaking. You know, for all those reasons, also very satisfying to treat when the kids walk out. Fascinating place, but extremely challenging. You had a better sort of initial re relationship with the staff there. They were, it was a very different situation to what you'd experienced in Angola. Yeah, it, it, ironically, because I'd been told that the South Sudanese, that's the people in the region I was going could be a little bit tricky to work with, is what I was warned by a lot of people. They said, look, these guys have been, you know, in, in an area that's been tormented by war for a, most of the past five decades. So they're really, you know, they're doing it tough and, and, and they can be quite demanding and, and, and tricky to work with. But I found the complete opposite. The Angolan guy, I mean, it, it's no judgment at all on the culture mm. or anything, but the, the Angolan project had been, these guys had been working together for years and they were quite tight-knit and they did know what they were doing. Whereas the impression, not to say the South Sudanese didn't know what they were doing at all, but the project, a lot of the staff were a lot newer to the project and, you know, many of them had spent years in refugee camps and were barely literate, if literate, some of them. And... We're just desperate to learn and um, just incredibly hungry to learn and we're just happy to have language lessons, teaching sessions on anything, which I found really sort of quite touching as well. They were just thirsty for knowledge. And Did you ever get to the bottom of the um, the cook who was trying to do you all in? Because he, all, all of you ended up with most severe gastro. Yes. And you couldn't quite figure out why, although when, when you described how your food was prepared and handled, <laughs> thinking, well, maybe that's a clue. We had a cook, which is really an over-enthusiastic use of the term okay. cook. We, we, had this, <laughs> we had a young woman uh, who was South Sudanese who, who worked and, and prepared our dinners. But I mean, again, dinners in, in inverted, mm. yeah, you know, it would be hard-boiled eggs with cold curry sauce on them and, and, <laughs> and spaghetti boiled to just mush in a pot. And so the food was a particularly low light, but there were 10, 12 of us in the team. And after a few weeks, I, I kept getting gastro and, and, and getting sick quite often. And after a couple of weeks, a few of us guys were sitting around and, and we were all like, hey, are you sick again? I'm like, yeah. And you? Yeah. I'm like, why is it only us guys? The women are never <laughs> sick. It's only us guys. We're a tough breed, you know, <laughs> Damien. <laughs> well, we thought either that or they had some sort of deal going with the cook. <laughs> so we we nicknamed her the assassin because we thought maybe she's trying to off us guys. We've, we've inadvertently offended her and she's trying to kill us <laughs> either through, you know, a combination of this repeated attacks of gastro and also, you know, encouraging us not to eat the food through these hideous dishes. Did you that ever she figure out what was wrong? Why you guys kept getting sick? No, but 
we come home and and she was cleaning dishes, you know, on on her knees in in the muddy, you know, on, on a little basin in 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 the mud after the rains. And we thought, yeah, no, this is this is probably our fault as yeah. much as <laughs> more than hers. We need to build decent facilities here. Um, the project, the the house was quite new, or, or the living the living setup we had. So we built a proper sink, and then it slowly settled down. <laughs> yeah, now th- this is where I, I I must admit I did laugh, and I'm sure if I was in that situation, I wouldn't have found it funny at all. But it was was it a morning that you were coming back from the showers and uh, wrapped in a little towel when suddenly there were was gunfire and everybody was running to the safe room and. You almost were rooted to the spot, didn't quite know whether to run back to your room for clothing and passports and things or whether to go and block yourself in the safe room. Yes. It was rather funny. (laughs) I'm sorry, Damien. I mean, it was one of those things that's frightening at the time and then Mm. you'd look back and when I was writing it, I thought that is quite ridiculous. There'd been occasional gunfights in the distance in South Sudan, but I mean, we were never targeted. They They were sort of between clans and... Were never, uh, I was never worried about being targeted. The, the risk was, you know, small, albeit real, of maybe being caught in crossfire. But I'd never been anywhere near a gunfight, and I got out of the shower. I was actually late one evening, it and I was walking. Night. I was walking from. We had a little concrete house, and I was walking from the shower in the house to. I, I had a little mud hut that I I lived in um, on the other side of the yard, and I was halfway across the yard, and all of a sudden I just heard these really loud cracks, and I'd never been so close to gunfire in my life and it was close and I just froze and our coordinator yelled out we had this concrete sort of safe room where we were supposed to run to and hide we had radio and provisions in there and she just yelled for everyone to get there and I watched my colleagues bolt but I just had a towel wrapped around my waist and I I honestly I was petrified absolutely petrified and I didn't know what to do which way to go and all I could think of then was well I can't hide in the safe room if I don't have underwear on so (laughs) so I ran I just and, and and I think I described it which as you know it was nothing resembling an act of bravery it was just misdirected panic so I, I bolted over to my to my hut and I'd only recently got to town so I hadn't even unpacked my bag and I flung things across the room and grabbed the underwear and oh, I couldn't find my passport and I was like screw the passport I'll get that later and then ran with my underwear it's still in my hand and bolted across and and I just sort of I made it to the safe room and then um, and then just had this sort of panic thing that, well, what if I'd got shot? And I was found, you know, my body found, just clutching underwear. And <laughs> <laughs> but you also had this other thought it. about coming home to a hero's welcome with your, your parents at the airport and there you were arriving in your boxes because that's yes. all you had. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And all the media going, oh, my God, these brave people. And, <laughs> And I'm in my boxer shorts. <laughs> Hero no, that, doctor. Uh, very funny. You were supposed to be there for nine months. You didn't complete that because it was just all getting too much eventually. And I'm, as I said, I'm surprised you, I wouldn't have lasted a day. So you left there. You went back to Australia after going via Geneva and Amsterdam, wherever else you have to go for debriefings. But you could end up going back to Australia and then end up in the outback and working not quite in the same situation, but very similar when it comes to possibly the understanding of the way medicine works, Western medicine works, and some of the situations you find yourself in with, with the people you were treating. So you were almost leaving one situation. One would think going back to, to something slightly better, but you seem to be almost looking for this kind of thing. There's this need to, to help people put you in these situations all the time. I mean, I'm wary. I, I, I guess I'm, I'm sort of wary of saying that my motivations are entirely, you know, altruistic and to help because definitely, I mean, I, I do take these positions and stuff because there's a degree of outrage and, you know, you, the inequality and you're like, well, this is insane. And, but, you know, I'm, I must 
If I'm being entirely honest, it's also it's an incredible travel opportunity. It's an incredible adventure. Um, you get to live and work among cultures that you would never have access to otherwise, and it's incredibly satisfying. So, I mean, the phrase that's there's actually a book called The Selfish Altruist that talks about aid workers and stuff, and I think for me that phrase sort of sums up the motivation for me anyway. There's a degree of suppose of altruism there, but ultimately you do it whatever the motivations because it makes you you know it feels right to you and and working in Aboriginal communities, which I ended up doing and found myself in, you know, almost inadvertently. I honestly went there at first because I needed money. I got back, I mean, with MSF, it's a volunteer position, large. Well, it was back then anyway. And I'd had quite a lot of time off and I needed to make money quickly. And I, I, I took these very well-paid locums in Aboriginal communities in Australia for the money. And, um, you know, sort of inadvertently, to my mind anyway, stumbled into this whole other world of of need and, and, and suffering and inequality. And it was... Really, I found it extremely confronting when I first went there. I didn't want to be there. I, in fact, I did a two-week stint and drove out of town and just vowed to myself that was it. Took another position to gain for the money a few weeks later. And then I, I, I've actually spent most of the past three years working in these communities. And I actually, I, I, I do enjoy it. And I think I enjoy just these windows into these other cultures and, 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 and getting to know these people. And, and also, I think, which, is, which sort of comes down to the reason I ultimately wanted to keep writing the book. I mean, there were many reasons at the start why I started. But, you know, I'm just sort of fascinated and, and, and wanted to try and convey this juxtaposition of these very beautiful, heartwarming, often funny moments or, or, or these, these stories of resilience, you know, amongst the local people all against this backdrop of hardship and poverty. And, and I think that just it makes it such a fascinating kind of experience and thing to witness and, and to try and render and get your head around. But Australia is, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's fascinating. And, and I, I found it actually more difficult. I still find it more difficult to get my mind around than anything I'd seen in Africa. Not, not to paint Africa with the same brush, the whole continent, but it's quite simple. You sort of stand there and you go, well, this is atrocious, this kid's malnourished, but ultimately it's because there's a lack of resources in town. And of course, there's many, many, many reasons why that is the case, but ultimately it's a lack of resources um, and, and poverty that causes us. In Australia, you know, we're a wealthy country and you find these sort of diseases of poverty in the centre of a very wealthy country. And the, the reasons are many, but I, I can't, kind of get Con my head around it. Properly, yeah, right? I find it far mm. more difficult to understand. I think we've given away way too much of the story. People need to go and get hold of this book. It's called Band Aid for a Broken Leg and it's by Damien Brown and it's called Being a Doctor Without Borders and Other Ways to Stay Single, although just very briefly you did have two marriage proposals, <laughs> one of whom was very upset with you that you didn't <clears throat> accept it or didn't take it seriously, let's put it that way. But uh, So you did have some options there, Damien. You need to get hold of this book. It's published by Alan and Unwin and it's available in South Africa through Penguin. It's also available at all good bookstores and it is a really good read. I said to Damien at the very beginning before we went on air that I wasn't quite sure how to tell him that I actually enjoyed the book because it was a lot of it was quite heartbreaking but it's a very very good read it's a very easy read it's something that you'll enjoy reading the content is sometimes a little bit disturbing but it is really well worth having a look at and having a read of Damien thank you so much for joining us and um, wish you much luck in your future endeavors I'm sure you'll be finding lots more interesting things to do and maybe look forward to a second book by any chance at any stage 
Uh, slowly starting to, yep, yeah, yeah, just okay. slowly starting. I shall I think keep, so. keep an eye out for that. Thank you. So I'm chatting there with Damien Brown, Dr. Damien Brown, about his new book, Band Aid for a Broken Leg. And if you'd like to find out where to get hold of that, you can get it at all good bookstores. It's published by Alan and Unwin, and it's available in South Africa through Penguin. And that's it for Time to Travel for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me this evening. And I'll be back with you next Monday evening, just after nine, with the Law Report. And we have a special treat on Monday. We've got Michael Bagram back with us again. Shame he's back all the time. He, I think he enjoys coming to chat with you. But we'll be talking next week about workman's compensation. That's the Law Report on Monday, the 23rd of September. If you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening, you can email me on travel at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page, Travel on SAFM.